Welcome to the September 26th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 13, and the sermon is entitled, The Beginning of History's Greatest Day, delivered today by Pastor Michael Fitzgerald. I must tell you, and I say this every so often because I think it every Sunday morning. Praise God you are here. Praise God you are tied in, streaming It is just good to be together in God's house, under God's favor, under God's hand, but also to open His Word. Praise Him that you have this Word in your lap, unrestrained and free. That is not true for the entirety of the world. We are a blessed people that we gather under the grace of God and that we have the Word of God before us. I want you to take your Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 18. We are moving another step forward in this gospel and today the title of the sermon is the beginning of history's greatest day and of course you know that means that now we're entering into the time that we're thinking about the cross and the resurrection the greatest time in the history of humankind because it is the moment of this time frame that we gain salvation that we have the opportunity to be heavenly uh, home And we're so thankful that we have that blessing in our hearts and in our lives because of what Jesus Christ did for us. We're starting that study as we get to chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. We move forward that that next step as John the disciple gives his account of the Lamb, the Son of God. John had walked with Jesus for three years in ministry. And that walk with the Lord had changed him mightily. He had heard the very word of God by the very voice of God walking the soil of the earth. He had literally felt God Almighty clothed in flesh, incarnate in those three years. He saw the glory of God with his own eyes. He saw the glory of God at the transfiguration. He saw the glory of God as he walked with him every single day. After John saw Jesus resurrected and ascending back to heaven, his heart burned with that truth for some 50 years. And God moved his heart to write this brief account of the life of Jesus Christ, literally changing the lives of men and women. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It changes us from the inside out. And John, with worship and with praise and with blessing, brings his gospel to us that the world might know that truth. Not a certain color, not a certain nation, but that the world would know that truth. Praise God that the the Lord has given us in this time frame of history to be able to touch the world through a camera on the wall. And we have many who are joining us today from the world as we give the gospel of the living Lord. Now, as we've read through this gospel, we've been studying one final Thursday evening as Jesus spent it with his disciples. Back in chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus meets with his 12 chosen men in a private room on the evening of the Jewish Passover. In that room, he celebrates the Passover meal that commemorates and remembers Uh, the freedom of Israel from the clutches of slavery in Egypt centuries before. He celebrates that meal with them and brings from it the Lord's Supper. He washes their feet, showing them the ultimate of humility as the 
very God of creation bowed on his knees and washed their feet. He dismisses Judas Iscariot from that group as his betrayer that night. And as Jesus and his disciples leave that room, he begins a walk with them. The walk begins in chapter 15. And that walk is progressing from that room setting to the Garden of Gethsemane. So on the walk that we see beginning in chapter 15, as he walks his disciples toward the Garden of Gethsemane, he teaches them every step of the way. He teaches them that he is the vine and they are the branches to be productive in the kingdom's work, but they can only be productive when they're attached to him as Lord and Savior. Still true today. No one can begin to use a talent. No one can be productive in the kingdom of God until we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and he lives in our hearts. He teaches his disciples as they walk that the world would often hate their ministries. Still true today. But he says to his disciples, I will send you the Comforter. I will send you the Holy Spirit. Jesus also foretells his grief and his weeping when they will watch him crucified. They yet know that truth this night as they walk toward the garden. But within 24 hours, they are going to see him die. Jesus fully well knows it, but his disciples do not. And yet the hour, the appointment, had come. It was time. Just as they arrive at the entryway of Gethsemane in chapter 17, Jesus stops his group of men and he prays with them. He prays the greatest prayer that has ever been spoken on earth. This is truly the Lord's Prayer. He gave us a model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, but that's really our prayer. That's the people's prayer. But John chapter 17 encapsulates the Lord's true prayer, the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed. He prays for himself that he would glorify the Father's will always. Even though Jesus prays for himself, it's to transfer the glory to his Father God. And then he prays for his 11 disciples, short one now that Judas Iscariot is gone. And he prays for them to stand out and step out into the world with the gospel of the Lord and to be courageous in serving him. Little did they know as well that night that most of them would die as martyrs and young men. Only John would live to be a ripe old age. And then thirdly, the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed includes Jesus praying for us, you and me, praying for the future of his church, the future of believers. He prays God's power upon us. He prays for every servant of the kingdom of God until he returns for his church. He's blessing us and praying for us in this prayer in John chapter 17 that we be unified in ministry and love, that we be together, that we love one another, and that we work together. We're not a group of separate people. We're not a group of strangers. We are to love one another and know one another and work together in the kingdom's work that we're unified just as Jesus is unified and one with the Father. We're to be unified with him in ministry. He prays for us. So today we open chapter 18 and this is the beginning of the event and the drama and the deepest love that God can give in the literal story of our salvation Beginning here and in the next chapters we are going to study, we're going to see the worst that human beings can do, and we're going to see the best of what God can give. 
as he gives us forgiveness of sin and life everlasting and the promise that anyone who comes to his son through that cross and through that empty grave will come to life and come to eternity in living with him. The best he can give is ours through that Savior that we come to in faith, receiving his grace. This is simply awesome, friends, as we begin these closing chapters of the Gospel of John. This is the awesome Word of God. And human words can barely cover what we're going to read in His Word in these next chapters. I will give it my best, and I will be on my knees and on my face before God that we will study these words asking the Lord to touch our hearts and lead our lives and bless this church and bless the world through what John writes here and what we see in the revelation of Jesus' life in these days to come. So turn with me to John 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13, the very beginning of verse 13 today. Hear these words as we now have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook of Sidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away. May God add his blessing to this portion of his mighty and holy word. After Jesus prayed with his disciples, as we see it in John chapter 17, they were standing just outside of the gate of Gethsemane. When he closed that prayer, it was time for them to move into the garden. And he took them, it says in the Bible, over a pathway of water, a brook. Now, a brook in Greek is not necessarily a constant flow of water. It could have been, but it also could have been a flow of water that 
only came when the rains came very hard or when the winter snow melted and the brook then picked up the melting water. But sometimes that brook was dry according to the Greek connotation of that word. But the brook in King James Version is called Cedron. Other versions that you might carry with you today have Kidron. It's the same word in Greek. It's the same inflection in Greek of the same brook that they crossed over. But the word Cedron or Kidron means gloomy or dark or sad. Isn't it interesting that Jesus then takes his disciples and he steps over the threshold into the garden, threshold of sadness, the threshold of gloom, because he knows what's coming. He knows what the next 24 hours hold for him. And so he steps over that brook symbolically to say he is going to be stepping into sadness in a very, very few hours. But crossing the brook, Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane. Scripture tells us it's a place that Judas Iscariot understood. It was a place that he, Jesus, went often. He met with his disciples there. He meditated there. He prayed there. Perhaps you have that special place in your life that you go to pray. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane as that special place where he met his father and often would meet the people who were closest to him there. But I want us to pause here and think about the garden of the Bible. I want you to remember, as I'm sure most of you do, that history and humanity began in a garden. The Garden of Eden. The first sin, our fall, happened in the Garden of Eden. It's amazing that God placed his creation of Adam and Eve, the first human beings from whom we all have descended, he places them in that garden, and he places them in a perfect environment. He places them there to live eternally. They would never die because they were creations of God, and they were living in a perfect environment, and they were living a perfect life. But very shortly, they fell into sin, and they lost the garden. They were expelled from the garden, and God blocked it so that they could not reenter starts out with perfection in Genesis chapter 1, but the, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, they've fallen and they're expelled and sin has come to the world. And all of the world falls, not just humanity, but nature falls. Thorns grow on roses. Thistles grow from the ground. Animals weren't living peacefully together anymore. Now it's the hunted and the hunter. And killing began. All of... Nature fell along with humanity in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus comes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray in obedience to God the Father. Now, the word Gethsemane means oil press. Gethsemane was an olive garden. And in that garden, there was a press where they would take those olives into the press and press out the oil of the olives. Of course, it was for food usage. It was for putting into lamps for light. Olive oil had so many uses in that culture. But the olive had to be destroyed in order to get the oil out of it. And so Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, symbolically saying, my human life is going to be destroyed on the old rugged cross for the sin of the world. So Jesus prayed as he faced the pressure and the pain 
and the brokenness and the destruction of crucifixion just hours ahead in the garden of the oil press. And he walked out of the garden of Gethsemane to face the old rugged cross. The crucifixion grounds were just outside of the garden. He went out of the garden of destruction so that he would be destroyed in order to take our sin upon his shoulders and we could be forgiven. The perfect Lamb of God laying down his life so sinners like me could be forgiven. An amazing truth restored promised eternal life not because of anything that I've done not because of any good I've lived but because of the gift of grace of Jesus on the cross it's true for every one of us it's true for the world anyone can come to Jesus and know that you will be saved and for every person who accepts Jesus Christ and his forgiveness we will spend eternity in another garden we read about that garden in Revelation chapter 22, a new and perfect place, a garden with a crystal clear river that emanates from the very throne of God. And on both sides of that crystal river are the tree of life. Although it's referred to as the tree of life, it's on both sides of the river. I can't explain that. I just know it's true. Twelve fruits growing off of that tree of life. An amazing picture. But what you see in the Bible are three gardens. The Garden of Eden in which there was perfection and then fall into sin. The Garden of Gethsemane in which Jesus said, I will be destroyed for the sin of men and women. And the Garden of Heaven where we will live for all eternity when we know Jesus as Lord and Savior. What an amazing Word of God. It holds hands with itself. From Genesis through Revelation, we see God's will and God's plan throughout. Jesus knew well what was going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went there directly according to his Father's plan and his Father's will. According to Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14, Jesus left eight disciples just outside of the entry gate, or just inside of the entry gate. But he takes three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, go with him into the interior of the garden. So just inside the gate, there are eight disciples. Going into the garden, there are three going with Jesus. Why did Jesus take three with him? Remember, indeed, he was the Son of Man. And he needed human support. And he needed brothers with him. And he needed their presence with him just to have them along in support as he was facing the hardest day of his earthly life. As the cross is looming right ahead, he takes these three trusted brothers with him so they could be with him and pray with him in this central spot in the garden of pressure and death and the oil press. Of course, we know Sadly, in this intense and agonizing and anxious moment for Jesus, Scripture tells us those three disciples fell asleep. They failed him. But friends, I want to say this to you from this pulpit. I don't criticize them because I've fallen asleep far too often. And I have failed him far too often. And I have not lived up to his standard for my life far too often. So I don't criticize these three men we all identify with them. 
we often fall asleep on our job and don't fulfill what Jesus has for us to do. So I pray that we will see this as a reminder that we too are to grow in our vigilance and grow in our desire to stay with our Lord step by step, vigilant and alert day by day. Well, Jesus knew that the end was coming. And Judas Iscariot knew where Jesus would be. John chapter 18, verse 3, it says that he brought a band of temple guards from the priests and the Pharisees. And it says that they carried lanterns and torches and weapons and swords because they came in ready for a battle. They came in ready to subdue this man who was going to resist them in every way. They were ready to subdue him. Whatever it took, they were armed and ready coming into that garden. Now, a band in the Greek language is also called a cohort. The Greek word is spira. A cohort, a band of soldiers. It's a military term. Now, a legion of soldiers in Rome was 6,000 soldiers. A band, a cohort of soldiers was one-tenth of a legion. So up to 600 men could have come into the garden that night. The term is used. But here's the crucial point in Scripture. However many came into the garden that night, I want you to look at John 18, verses 4 through 6. This is amazing. John 18, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Amazing. I never forget this. As we now begin the trek through the cross, I want you to remember through every verse of Scripture that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, never lost control in what was going to happen here. He willingly went to the cross for us. And he held on to the authority of God. Although John doesn't mention it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do mention that Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus with a kiss. With the common act of affection in that day, that act of welcome and farewell in that day. Jesus himself then asked the soldiers as they stand there with their lanterns and their spears and their swords and their weapons, whom do you seek? And when they say they are there to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, and I can only imagine the inflection in their voices when they scream at him, we're here to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, the criminal. Jesus does not shrink back one iota, one millimeter. He says, I am he. And they fell backward to the ground under the power of God. They were stunned. They were incapacitated. They were momentarily paralyzed and overcome by the sheer power of three words of God. 
I am he. And it put as many as 600 men on their backside through the power of God. And it took a little bit for them to recover and to get off the ground and stand once again. So once they gain their consciousness and their composure, they get back on their feet, they pull the rank back together. Jesus, (laughs) I think it's so funny. Jesus asks again, whom do you seek? And I can only imagine their voices the second time around. They didn't scream, Jesus of Nazareth. They guarded back and said, Jesus of Nazareth. He had knocked them down one time. For all they knew, in the second round, he could slay them all. And they were scared of it. They felt the power of God. Someone told me once upon a time that once you've been under a taser and you know what it feels like, you never want to go there again. Jesus tased those guys. And they did not want it again, even unto death. And so I believe that while they may have screamed Jesus of Nazareth the first time, the second time it was very quiet and very timid because they knew he had the situation in his hands. They knew, those soldiers knew who was in charge. And it was not them. It was this one man standing in their presence. But this time, instead of slaying them, he surrenders to them. I am he. It's time. And by the way, he could have used those words to slay them had it been his choice, had it been the Father's will. But rather than slay them, he surrendered to them. But I want you to notice here, Jesus protects those three disciples with him. Look at John chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. In other words, free these three with me. You're seeking me. Let my three friends here go their way. So he protects them. So Jesus says, take me, arrest me, let them go. Remember now, John the Gospelist is one of those three. The man who writes this gospel was in that little triad of men. And in John chapter 18, verse 9, John remembers something that Jesus prayed just outside of the garden in chapter 17 before they walked in. He prayed this for his men that night in that prayer. And he said this in John 17, 12. Jesus prayed, Those thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. Jesus spoke the words that night to spare their lives. And John knew it very well. Jesus prophesied he would always protect his disciples. Ladies and gentlemen, that is still true today. If you belong to him, you are under his divine hand of protection and grace and blessing. And you will not walk anywhere in this world that his love and his protection will not envelop you as you walk. That's his his plan and that's his promise. Well, then comes the scene we remember very well. Beginning with John chapter 18, verse 10. Well, old Peter decides he's going to jump into action. And he is packing a short sword under the robe. And he pulls out that sword and he 
begins thrashing and charging at the soldiers there trying to protect Jesus. One of them standing in the front line is a servant whose name is Malchus. And John notes that Peter lops off his ear. Let me ask you this. Is that what Peter was aiming for? No. He was aiming for his head. Malchus just ducked at the right moment. And he only performed a little surgical procedure of taking off his ear. He was pointing for his head. But I want you to look at what Jesus says to Peter. Look, you don't have to read the verse, but listen to verse 11 encapsulated here. Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. Don't try to help me. Your courage here is misdirected right now as you're charging at all of these soldiers with your sword. Peter, it's time. It's time. I'm in the Father's will. I must drink the Father's cup. And Scripture, drinking the cup usually illustrates suffering or sorrow that's going to come your way. When you say, I'm drinking the cup in Scripture, sorrow is on the doorstep. So Jesus says, the hour of the cross has arrived. Can you imagine those three disciples watching Jesus being tied in ropes or chains and being led away? They don't know what's going to happen next. The only thing they know from the bottom of their heart, whatever's going to happen next is not going to be good. But they have no idea that the cross is coming in the morning. Well, as we close the passage today, here's the truth that I don't want you to forget. Jesus went into the garden of the oil press, the garden of Gethsemane, knowing he was going to be betrayed. And he knew that Judas Iscariot was going to come. And he knew the band of soldiers were going to come. And he knew that he was going to be arrested. And he knew he was going to be bound. And he knew that the cross was coming. And this is crucial. No man, no soldier, no government, no leader, not Satan himself, took Jesus to the cross. It was an act of his grace and his love for every person in the world for every person who had been born and every person who would be born, including you and me, wherever you are in the world, your grace was given by the cross, whoever we are. No man put Jesus on the cross. He had complete control, complete authority over every second. Don't ever forget that. He could have walked away at any moment. He could have called a legion of angels at any moment. But nails did not hold Jesus to the cross. Soldiers did not put Jesus on the cross. Love did. Love for you, me, did. Our best acts of goodness cannot save us. His love does. Our life doesn't build us a home in heaven. Love does. The love of God for us. Believer, never forget, never take for granted what Jesus did for you and me. He surrendered because love took him to the cross. This is the beginning of the compelling and awesome account of what Jesus did to redeem your life. Whoever you are, 
He redeemed our life in these coming moments. It should bring us to our knees in worship, and it should bring us to our feet in ministry that we would serve him, the one who gave himself for us. I pray today that's our commitment. Lord, all that you gave to me, I return to you my life, and I want to serve you, and I want to minister for you because love did it for me. Today, as I close, if you've never come to this Savior, Jesus Christ, today is the beginning of the story of your forgiveness. If you're here in the house, if you're watching by streaming, listening out in the parking lot in an FM signal, this is the beginning of the story of our forgiveness, the account of God's love for us. Jesus was arrested and tormented, and he bled and he died in your place and in my place that we might be forgiven of the awful sin that every one of us has committed before God. Do you believe that? If you've never received him and you believe that, today can be the day of your salvation by saying, I I come to receive you as my Savior. Don't put it off till this afternoon or till next Sunday or till next month or till next year or I'll just wait till I'm on my deathbed and get it right. Do it today. Amen, believers? Do it today. If you're here, if you're listening and you've never come to Jesus, now's the moment. This is the day of your salvation. Because love went to the cross for you and me. What an awesome message. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, thank you for these moments, Father, when we realize that you were mounted to a cross so I could walk with you in faith. It is true for every person, Lord, I pray this moment that we who are believers will be moved by this account of your love for us. We've heard it and heard it all our life, and sometimes it gets threadbare, and we don't listen to what it's really saying to us. Help us today to be recommitted to the old account of what Jesus did for us. And if there's one who needs you, Lord, I pray that this moment, this very moment, he or she will say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Whether they're here or in another country of the world, today is a day of salvation. Father, I pray that you will bless that one to say yes to you. I accept you in faith this moment. Church home, whatever the need, meet us in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.